Morning. Now, I, I need to correct Pastor James about something, but that's because I got corrected the last service, and that is they're not serving green chicken enchiladas because you think they're green chickens, they're, they're not good. It's green chili chicken enchiladas, just to be correct. And, and now that uh, we've said that, uh, I put that thought aside now. There are no green chili chicken enchiladas until after the service, because I don't want you to keep thinking about that while we have some biblical, biblical issues to deal with today. But before we do all of that, I want to ask Amber uh, Olguin to come up. Uh, Amber's uh, parents, Henry and Cindy, and brother Andrew, have been a part of our worship team now as they've grown up in, in this church. I, I mentioned last night that they, she was here since she was about four years old, but actually it was when she was two. She was just in your arms coming to church. And we're so excited that today she's, uh, actually this week, is, will be on her way to uh, uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College in uh, Murrieta, California. So. We just want to pray for her and, and ask the Lord to bless her and, of course, bless the family while she's away as well. So would you just join us now as we pray for Amber? They are green chickens. They died of envy. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> All right. pray for Cindy, too. She's falling apart. Oh, yeah. I know. All right, let's pray. Father, it, it is always a joy for us, though sometimes the parting is awfully hard, but it's always a joy when our young people are heeding the call of your Holy Spirit uh, to grow more and more in your grace and in your knowledge. And in this case, Lord, we know that Amber is, is responding to that calling and is uh, now on her way to Bible college. And we're just so thankful to, uh, to you, Lord God, for having brought her up in, in, in this church and, and uh, her family uh, all together, being with us for all these years and, and knowing that through it all, Lord God, you have blessed, you have provided, you have uh, granted such wonderful gifts uh, to both Amber and Andrew. But we just thank you so much, Lord God, for this opportunity for us to lift her up to you and ask you to bless her as she prepares to leave to Bible college. That you'll bless, Lord, all the preparation and all the things that she needs to do uh, in, in getting ready to leave and, and start this new exciting adventure, Lord, and adventure of faith that it is. We pray as well for Henry and Cindy. I know that it's always difficult when, when children leave home, but I just pray you give them the peace and the understanding, Lord, that, that you're in, in charge and you've given the call and you've given also the promise to be with her and to strengthen her and, and to protect her and to keep her throughout this, uh, this time that she'll be away. So we just thank you so much for this opportunity today to send her off with your blessing. And that is our desire, Lord, that not only just today, but every day you will bless her as she learns more and more of your word and learns more and more of what you want her to do and what you want her to be for you. And this, Lord God, we thank you for and ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord.
okay. Genesis chapter 31. I think that the, uh, the title of the message is appropriate, certainly for uh, this last prayerful event that we had, that uh, when God is calling us to go, we should be obedient to that. But anytime that does happen, the world always seems to say no. The world says no, but God says go. And that's something we see now in the life of Jacob as we continue our study in this wonderful life. It, it, it hasn't always been wonderful, has it? I mean, the, the, when we first met Jacob, he was being born and he was showing already the signs of, of his conniving and, and all. And this is why he received the name Yaakov, Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver. The thief. But he paid for a lot of that already because we realized that he reaped what he sowed when he arrived in Haran and met somebody who was his match from the standpoint of supplanting and deceiving. And of course that was Laban who had, was his uncle but would become his father-in-law due to his marriages to Leah and to Rachel. But now, as we have seen the last couple of weeks, Jacob is wanting to go home. And he realizes that desire more and more because of his relationship now with his God. He realizes that there is a purpose in his life. And not only is he to have a family with sons who are to eventually birthed the nation of Israel. But he takes seriously now the calling that God has given him to be in the line of bringing forth into this world the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. But along the way, as we have seen in his life, there are certain complications. He wanted to marry Rachel only, but he had to end up marrying Leah first and then Rachel. But then they had all the children and Rachel who had been barren now has born Joseph. And it was then that he said to Laban, it's time to return. But Laban didn't want him to leave, so he said, listen, why don't don't we do this? He said, look, I'll give you an inheritance, I'll, I'll give you something so that you can have your own wealth and eventually you can have your family and you can take care of them. You've got to remember that Jacob is about 99 years old around this time. And he's talking to him like he's a teenager. Oh, we're going to set you up for the future, you know. Well, not my future if you're 99. Of course, we know that he's going to live to be about 137. So he still has a few years to go, but he doesn't know that. In other words, you know, neither does his family. But nonetheless, Laban says, look, What do you want? What are your wages? So, well, 
He said, I'll tell you what, I'll take all the sheep that are speckled and spotted. I'll take the goats that are speckled and spotted. And you can keep the pure ones. Of course, the idea is all the pure would have the dominant gene. And Laban liked that idea, so he said, okay, you take, you take my pure ones and you breed them a three days journey away from us. And we'd be a three day journey away from you with yours so that there's no conniving here. Because Laban didn't trust Jacob as, any more than Jacob certainly didn't trust Laban. And that's where we arrived at last time. And Jacob would now go beyond the 14 years of service to Laban to about 20 years of service, as we'll see. But let's, let's get into this study here in verse 1 of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all this wealth. We'll talk about the fact that uh, they obviously had some kind of a meeting between those, that three-day journey just to check on each other to make sure everything was on the up and up. But then these words are, are spoken so that Jacob could hear them. Not that they were spoken directly to them, but the, so that he could hear them. Jacob heard the words, he said. But then notice something else. He saw something. Jacob saw the countenance of Laban. And indeed, it was not favorable toward him as before. But then at that moment, the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return. Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Eleven sons were born to Jacob from Leah, Rachel, and their maidservants Bilhah and Zilpah. And it was after Joseph was born to Rachel that Jacob sensed the call of God upon his life to return home to the land of Canaan. He had worked for his uncle and now his father-in-law Laban in Haran now for 14 years. But Jacob recognized this was not his home. The only problem is that Laban does not want Jacob to leave. And the reason is probably not what you would think. Because he didn't want Jacob to stay so that he could be close to his daughters. He didn't want Jacob to stay so that he would be close to his grandsons and his granddaughters, his grandchildren. Those of you that are grandparents, you know, when, you're, when your sons and daughters are away from El Paso and... You know, you just wish you could be with them so you could be with your grandchildren. Right? When they're away, well, there's a void in your life. But that's not Laban. He doesn't want Jacob to stay because of his daughters or his grandchildren. He wanted them to stay because God was blessing Jacob. And since Jacob worked for Laban, Laban was benefiting from this. And Jacob now, if I could use the term, Jacob was now a cash cow to Laban. And he was going to milk him for everything that he could. So Jacob makes this deal with Laban to stay with him for a time, and that would end up being about six years, so now 20 years in the life of Jacob spent in Haran. And then when it is time for him to leave, all the speckled and the spotted sheep and the goats would be his and the solid colored ones would belong to Laban. And for Laban, he's thinking that this is a good deal because the dominant genes are in, he, in those animals that belong to him. 
and, and the solid colored ones, and thus it would favor Laban. That was his thinking. And if it was just on the natural level, then that would probably be true. He would have all the blessing of the solid colored animals, sheep and the goats. But just in case there was a problem, and God blesses Jacob, Laban put Jacob in charge of his own animals, and so if God did bless, Laban would benefit. Because you see, it was all about Laban. That was his life, it was all about himself. And as we come to chapter 31 of Genesis, Jacob, uh, Jacob has, uh, has been working for Laban 20 years, as we said. And Jacob feels that it's now time to go home. But with this as our background, let, let's see what the Lord has for us as we study the Word, because we, we have to see the intricacies now of what is being said. The separation from Laban is indeed the subject of this whole chapter, chapter 31. And we know that this separation was certain to occur. But we need to, we need to consider first and foremost the prompting of that separation. The prompting. What prompted this separation? Because remember, he wanted to go six years sooner. He wanted to go after the 14 years served. Yet he chose to stay because Laban had made this offer to him to have the speckled and the spotted sheep and all. And those would become his inheritance or his wealth, as it were. So he stayed an extra six years. Yet six years earlier, he knew he needed to go home. Seems like God needs to prompt him a little bit, doesn't it? Does this sound familiar in your life? You know that there's something God wants you to do, and you just, but you just kind of linger in that one little area. But you know God wants you to go that way, but you, you're kind of like, oh, I know that, but okay. Doesn't God just prompt us a little bit? Yeah, sometimes he has to, doesn't he? Well, let's look at it here again. Same, same verses. Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons. The Lord allows Jacob now to hear Laban's sons talking, speaking somewhat cowardly because they wouldn't speak to him face to face. So he had to hear their words. And, and they said, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has acquired all this wealth. But then he not only hears that, but he sees Laban. And Laban must have been there as well. And he saw the countenance of Laban. And indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Oh, before Jacob, I mean, uh, Jacob was in, uh, in, you know, in Laban's eyes was great because, you know, everything that Jacob did, he did for the Lord in essence. And, and so Jacob did it unto the Lord and, and Laban benefited from it. So Laban was getting all of this benefit. He, he was just reaping all his wonderful benefits from, from Jacob just being there. But now he, he's showing his true colors. He knows that eventually Jacob's going to leave. And he's going to leave with all his family. But more importantly, he leaves with all of his blessings. Because Laban never took hold of the God of Abraham. Knew about him, but didn't take hold of the God of Abraham. He He was only concerned with himself. But then he heard the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him in his spirit. And he said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now, many things could have prompted the separation of Jacob from Laban, but here we want to focus on what the text says. First of all, let's understand why Laban's sons were so upset with Jacob. 
It isn't that Jacob stole anything from Laban. That was a lie. Jacob didn't steal anything from Laban, but Jacob was gaining more and more and Laban was losing out. And so they saw what Jacob had as their own inheritance being taken away. But that was a lie too. Because Laban was a wealthy man, all due to Jacob's presence there. And out of his wealth, he could take care of his sons and his daughters. So what they were saying was cowardly, and it was false, and it was hypocritical. And folks, when envy gets in the picture, remember we talked a little bit about envy and covetousness between Leah and Rachel? Because Rachel wanted what Leah had, and Leah wanted what Rachel had, and you know, it was just a big mess. Well, that's the same thing here. There's envy. And when envy gets into the picture, truth seems to be distorted, as is the case here. In fact, as they tell their father what is going on, they are poisoning his heart and his mind even more towards Jacob. And now tension is mounting. God was blessing Jacob, and they didn't like that. Have you ever noticed that as believers, that when God blesses you, and you tell somebody what God has done, if they don't know the Lord, they look at you and they kind of say, oh, that's nice. But inside they're going, ah, why does God always bless them? Never blesses me. Ah, yeah. Always got something bad to say. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way it is. The world doesn't like it when God blesses us because we know God and they don't. Now, if they just only learn to know who God is, what's going to happen? They're going to be blessed. And a lot of us sitting in here had the same experience. We were upset because our Christian friends were getting blessed. But now, guess what? Is He blessing you? Is He blessing you? Is the Lord blessing you? Is He really blessing you? Okay, yeah. Isn't that great? God just blesses us. We don't know why. We don't deserve it. Does anybody deserve it here? Anybody really so squeaky clean that we can deserve everything God gives us? Not one of us. The Bible says all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God blesses us in spite of us. So the world doesn't like it. And Jacob's uh, uh, brothers-in-law, boy, the, the, or brother-in-laws, no, brothers-in-law, they, they didn't like it, whoever they were. They didn't like it. And then not only that, but keep in mind that Laban, when this deal was being made with Jacob... He thought it was a great idea. But now he has a change of mind. And Laban changes his mind a lot in this chapter, as we'll see in just a moment. So that, that is what cowardly conversation, which is the conversation they were having so that Jacob could hear it. That was a cowardly conversation. And, and so uh, what cowardly conversation and hypocrisy and hyperbole does, or hyperbole is, is, is just exaggeration, what that can do is pollute a person's heart and mind. Cowardly in that, in that they spoke their thoughts so that their father and Jacob could hear them. They were hypocritical in that they were shepherding livestock actually stolen from Jacob. And they exaggerated the facts in that they accused Jacob of stealing from Laban when all along he had added to Laban's wealth. Those are the kind of problems that Jacob is facing here. The troubles that Jacob is having to deal with. All because of all the good work that Jacob had been doing. Now Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 4, he said this. He said, again, I saw that for the all toil and every skillful work of man is envied by his neighbor. There it is. For all toil and every skillful work of man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. 
Grasping for something that you just can't take because it's just worthless to have that envy. It's worthless to, to think that, you know, somebody else prospers and you just want their blessing, you know. Isn't that why there's so much thievery in this world today? You know why people take what doesn't belong to them? Yeah, they even do it in church. I mean, if you've taken our Bibles, didn't tell us about it. No, I'm just kidding. Just, that's a joke. If you don't have a Word of God, take it with you. We want you to have the Word of God with you. But see, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, it's the attitude of the heart. And, and, and so it's just envy. It, it's vanity. It's, it's worthlessness. It's emptiness. In other words, here's, here's the thing. In other words, why work so hard? Because when you do, everybody wants what you have. So why do you work so hard? Now, you have to understand that Solomon is looking at this from a human perspective, and he saw it as truly empty. Why bother working hard? Well, consider this, what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he says, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun. Now, under the influence or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon shows us the perspective under the sun, which is worldly. He's showing us the worldly perspective, not of God, and thus he reveals the wrong conclusion about work from that perspective, for we know from God's perspective that work is not done in vain. It is not empty, no matter what others may say or do to us. When you are doing things as unto the Lord, it is never in vain. It is never worthless and it is never empty. Take, for example, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Never think that the things that you do for the Lord are just worthless. And that goes, not only if you're in ministry or doing ministry, but it also goes for what you do at the places that God has you, whether you're a school teacher or whether you're a business owner or whatever it is that you do. You have to every day go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be doing what I'm going to be doing today as unto you and not unto others and not unto myself, but unto you. That has to be our prayer. Because if not, then someplace down the line, it's going to be in vain. And we're going to be dealing with things from the the human perspective rather than from the spiritual perspective. That is why James in chapter 1 verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. What is the perfect law of liberty? Just very quickly. The perfect law of liberty is the love of God. And he says, but the perfect law of liberty... He says, he who looks into it and continues in it. Ah, continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. I pray that every day as you seek the Lord, as you seek to give him your business, or as you seek to give him your work and your hands, and whatever it is that you use to glorify God in your work, wherever it is, or in your schoolwork, or whatever it may be, I pray that as you're doing that, you're going to realize that God is serious about blessing you. That as you live your life for Jesus Christ and the love of God and continue in it, the one thing He wants to do is bless you. Don't be a forgetful here of being a doer of the work, but 
be one that knows he's going to be blessed in what he does. And the blessings don't have to be something that you see or can hold. Many times the blessings are spiritual blessings. And don't forget the very fact that the Lord said that we need to store up our treasures. Where? In heaven. So we'll see them eventually. We may not see them here. But there truly are blessings as we serve the Lord. As we work out our faith. And so we are to work hard in spite of what others may say or do to us. And again, Paul puts this into perspective in Colossians 3.17 when he says, And whatever you do in word or in deed. Now I want you to notice that. Not just in deed, but also in your words. Because your words... are accountable before the Lord as much as your deeds are. So, whatever you do in word or deed, do all. Do all in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, through Jesus Christ. Do all in the name of the Lord. Now, if Jacob was doing what the Lord wanted him to do and was blessing his word, why all this trouble? Right? Now, last night I asked the the congregation this question. I said, now, but I phrased it this way. I said, look, if I were to ask you all, if you have had trouble in your life, I would venture to say that only half of you would raise your hand. They're just kind of looking at me. I said, well, let me rephrase the, the question. Why don't I just ask you the question? How many of you have had trouble in your life? And, and you know what? Only half raise their hands. And I thought, that means that we got a half, half of a congregation here that's never had trouble at all. Can that be possible? How many of you had trouble in your life? Oh, I prompted you. That's prompting, you see? And you, and you responded. Oh, that, praise the Lord. I'm, you guys get an A today. We're still working on the C from last night and the B from this first service. You guys got an A. All right. We all face trouble, don't we? Even when we know that what we're doing is where God wants us to do it and we are there because we, we're at peace with the fact that God has put us here, we know we're going to have trouble. The Bible tells us that. You know, Jesus told us that. The apostles told us that. If you're a believer in me, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, Jesus said. Paul talks about that. He says, listen, in this, you know, you're going to have tribal, troubles and trials. Yeah, you will. That's okay. The Lord's with you. And we know that we are where we are because God has places there because we have peace in our hearts. But there comes a time when all of a sudden peace isn't there anymore. Even if you continue to do your job as unto the Lord, then all of a sudden there's not a peace there. What's happening? Well, let me explain it this way. I'll just use myself as an example very quickly. Many, many years ago, I, I was a high school band director, and, and, uh, but I was also a believer, and I was, I was actually, God was already preparing me to be a pastor, and, and, uh, but up at, until that time, I was a worship leader, and I was enjoying that because I could do the worship leading in the weekend and, and teach all week long at the school, and you know, a steady job, steady income, and all of that good stuff. And, and when I still serve the Lord, but not have all the responsibilities, you know. For the, uh, so that was all wonderful for many years, until one day that I knew that God was saying, it's time for you 
to be serious about the calling I'm giving you. To be a pastor, to, to lead a part of my flock. I had to pray hard about that. I kind of developed a plan. Well, I can teach for another few years before, you know, things start happening and things start getting bigger and, and whatnot. God's plan was different. So the last year I, I, I taught in public school was the, was the year that I didn't have that peace anymore. Everything was working out just fine with my teaching, with my kids. But God put a thorn in the flesh in my life at that time. And it was the one thing that stirred my nest. And I began to realize I don't have the peace because I'm not any longer where God wants me to be. But I have to finish my assignment I tried to go and get a get a a, a, a transfer so that I could not be in the high school anymore because that's a lot of work with that and maybe go to elementary school and teach that for a while. God said, "No, I want you out." I fought it a little bit, but I trusted the Lord. Sessie and I prayed, and finally I just realized, okay, I got to trust the Lord. Nope, couldn't be a transfer, couldn't be anything else. They may, you know, they, uh, my superior said, no, it's either this job or nothing. And I said, okay, I know now what God wants me to do. At that moment, I had the peace of God again. So, we have troubles. But we can have the peace through those troubles. And we need it, don't we? We need peace through the troubles that we face in our, in, in, in our callings and in our businesses and in our work and in wherever it is that we are. We can face the greatest of trials, but God has given us wisdom. He's given us His Word. He's given us His, His plan. And we can handle it. But if He wants to move us on, there's a lifting of that peace just so that we can say, Okay, Lord, now I've got to obey You. The hedge is lifted a little bit. The nest is stirred, and we got to get out of the nest. So consider that God was going to use this experience with Jacob to stir his nest, so to speak, to get Jacob to fly, to sprout his wings and fly, to soar in his faith, to trust in the Lord with all of his heart. The Lord wanted Jacob back in the promised land. The Lord wanted him back in the land of Canaan. And now it was that time to fly. Because God does that in our lives as He moves us, as He molds us, as He prepares the work for us. And as the nest is stirred, we too have to fly. And we begin to fly again, moving to the next step in our Christian life as God uses us for His glory. But how is Jacob going to know for sure? Because that's really the big question we always ask. How are we going to know for sure that the time to leave is now? Well, yes, the directions, or I should say the circumstances, seem to point in that direction, but they actually can fool us. Sometimes circumstances by themselves can actually fool us. They might look good, right? We, we look on the outside and say, well, everything looks pretty good. Well, ask, ask the Apostle Paul. 
Because in the book of Acts, we're told that Paul really wanted to go to Asia. And he probably said, you know, everything looks pretty good for Asia. But uh, one night, Paul, Paul gets a dream from the Lord and a vision. And, he, and, and, and a man from Macedonia is speaking to him. He says, hey, Paul, don't go that way. We need you over here. God didn't want him to go to Asia. He wanted him to go to Europe. Eventually, he would go to Asia. But he, would, he wanted him to go to Europe. He wanted him to go to Greece and, and to that area of Macedonia. So you see, we have to trust that some days God has to do something to close a door and open another one. And by the way, with the Lord, He'll always, if He does close the door, He is going to open another. Because He's always got a plan for us. While every one of us has a breath in us, He has a plan for us. Never forget that. So, circumstances by themselves don't always work out. But let's look at verse 3 again, because here is how we see that Jacob knew it was time to leave Haran. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family. Just that much. Does that sound like a suggestion? No. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. That's the second part. Now, in that we see two things. Jacob didn't just leave because of the bad situation he was in. He left because of God's word. First and foremost, God's word. Return to the land of your fathers and your family. That's a command. He left also because of God's spirit. So notice, God's word and God's spirit. Because the spirit said to him, I will be with you. You go because I command you, and you go because I'll be with you. God's word and God's spirit. Has anything changed about the circumstances? Now we can trust that we are in the circumstances that God wants us to be in so that we can see His Spirit and His Word in those circumstances. That's God's providence, as we'll see in just a moment. So everything lined up with those circumstances that He faced, and so He knew it was time to go. Now I told this story in the other two services, uh, a story about a fact that prior to electronic navigation, a certain harbor in Italy could only be reached by sailing up a, a, a narrow channel between dangerous rocks and shoals. Over the years, many ships have been wrecked there, and navigation is extremely hazardous, or so the story goes. Uh, to guide the ship safely into port, three lights have been mounted on three huge poles in the harbor, and when the three lights are perfectly lined up and seen as one, the ship can safely turn to begin navigation up the narrow channel. And if the pilot sees two or three lights separately, well, he knows that he's off course and he's in danger. So he must continue to maneuver his vessel until the lights perfectly line up before he can safely turn into the harbor. I don't know if that story true or not. I really tried to look that thing up as much as I could to see. You know, I want to make sure I'm not giving any false, you know, stories or anything. But that's the way this story goes. And I kind of looked it up and other pastors and preachers used it. And I thought, well, I don't want to trust that either. And yet at the same time, I thought, but, th- but it makes sense. Even if it's not a true little story, it makes sense. For our safety and navigation in our, in our uh, ship of life, God has provided three beacons to guide us. The same rules of navigation apply to us as to that harbor pilot. The three lights must be perfectly lined up as one before us uh, or as one before it is safe for us to proceed up the channel. So the three harbor lights of guidance are these, as I mentioned already. The Word of God, which is our objective standard. 
By the way, when I say an objective standard, I mean it is a standard that is unbiased. Because the Word of God is unbiased. It is for all. The standard of the Word of God, the standard of the law of God, all of us are going to be judged by, in essence. So the Word of God is the, is the, the objective standard. But then also, another light is the Holy Spirit, which is our subjective witness. The subjective witness is a personal witness. We are each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ to have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not only the witness of the Spirit, we are to have the presence of the Spirit in us. The Scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit not only comes alongside us, it is with the Holy Spirit that we can say that Jesus is Lord, thereby we can be saved. But not only that, but we are to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit into our lives. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, sounds to me like what uh, Jesus was saying to the woman at the well. When He says that, uh, that the Lord is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. We have the truth of the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God to help us with the understanding of the Word of God. And now we can look at our circumstances. The circumstances come after. We don't look at the circumstances until we look at the Word of God and we look at and listen to the Spirit of God so that the circumstances de- line up as divine providence. I have you here. I have brought you here to this point. I am ready to move you on. The lights have lined up. And the lights have lined up now for Jacob. The Word of God returned. It was a command. The Spirit of God, I'll be with you. And now the circumstance. I got I got to get out of here. I've already told Laban, but he didn't like what I said before. So I've been here six more years. Probably six more years than he really needed to be there. But God is in control of the circumstances too. And sometimes we say, you know, I probably should have left a long time ago from where God wanted me to be. But you know what? Eventually we find out that God's timing is perfect. And even in those six years or so, God has worked something for you to understand that He's in control. Yes? Okay, good. So I just want to make sure you're here with me. So folks, I pray, I pray that we might be guided by God's beacons of light that will guide us in and when and where we are to go. That they will guide us safely through the situations that we face in life. And that we will acknowledge that it is the Lord who does lead us safely to our destination. Can you trust it when He says, I will be with you? Can you trust Him? Good. Because I want you to consider something before we go on. Isaiah chapter 58 verses 10 and 11. And just for you to understand, it says, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Which just simply is saying, if we just look at it from a general perspective, that it's just, if you just do the Word of God, if you just do the will of God, God God is going to shine light into your darkness, whatever it may be. And your darkness will shine as the noonday. But here's the most important statement. The Lord will continually, or the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. In other words, even if the world is in a time of drought, God will provide for you. And He will strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And this is the lesson that Jacob needed to learn. It is the lesson that we need to learn. 
God said, I will be with you. What does that mean? It means he's going to be with us. He's going to be protecting us. He's going to be providing for us. And he's going to be prompting us and moving us in the direction he wants to go. But not only that takes place here, but now there's a persuasion. The persuading for the separation. Because he has to tell his family, especially his wives, Leah and Rachel. So let's go on here because we had a lot to do in a short time. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father. Uh, Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streak shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streak. Now what he means there is, if you remember from last time, he had said, I'll take all of the speckled and the spotted sheep and you can have all the pure ones. And Jacob, I mean, Laban agreed because that, that normally would mean that he would have the, the dominant animals. But it was God that changed the, he changed the rules in essence. And, 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 and Jacob kept seeing that his, that uh, Jake, uh, I should say Laban's sheep that were the pure ones were bearing the speckled and the spotted and, uh, and the streaky, you know, colored animals. And God was blessing Jacob. That's what he's saying here. It was God that did it. It wasn't the fact that Jacob had that little stick. Remember that stick that he put into the water? It wasn't that. It wasn't that he had the, 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 the pure sheep looking at the colored sheep. Okay, if you look long enough, then your children's sheep will become like those, right? Because th- that was a, a superstition. Even if he did that, God was still going to bring it about because God was blessing Jacob. So this is what he says in verse 9. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. That is what happened in chapter 30. And he goes on and he says, And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived, that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled and gray spotted. And then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream. Who's the angel of God? Primarily, if we look at consistent uh, uh, Bible study of the Old Testament, anytime the angel of the Lord is mentioned, or the angel of God as it is here mentioned, it is about Jesus. And it says, the angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You see, now Laban is going to reap what he has sowed. And the angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel. I am the God of Bethel. I am the God of the house of God where I met you and you met me. Where we established our relationship together. Where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me, now arise and get out of this land and return to the land of your family. He mentions Bethel because before he goes on to Beersheba, where his family is, he has to stop at Bethel. And Jacob needed to make sure his family would separate with him. 
So he did some persuading about this need to Rachel and Leah. He called his wives to the field, which gave him the needed secrecy for this important conversation about separation from Laban. He then gave them good reasons for leaving. He spoke to them as the spiritual head of his family about the countenance of Laban. He says, I've looked at the attitude of your father's face and it is totally different now than it used to be. He spoke to them about his own industrious conduct. I have worked very hard for your father. He spoke to them about Laban's craftiness regarding Jacob's wages. Your, your, your father has changed my wages ten times. And of course he spoke of the care from God. God has met with me. And he's told me it's time to go. So he finally spoke to his wives about the command from God to return to Canaan. The important thing is Rachel and Leah saw how trustworthy, how faithful, how hard Jacob worked in spite of the way their father Laban treated and cheated him. Now I do have to mention something, you know, if I didn't mention it before, but uh, well, I'll, I'll mention it in just a moment. But in those 20 years of service to Laban, he changed Jacob's wages 10 times. And we're not talking about a pay increase here. We're talking about something totally different. He changed his wages so that he could benefit. Laban himself could benefit. And Jacob would end up with less. But as he tried to cheat the man of God out of what was his, God intervened and blessed Jacob even more. And what a great lesson for us to learn in that because man may try to cheat us and rip us off, but God is aware and He will take care of things as long as we are faithful in what we're doing. Are we being faithful in what God has called us to do? Are we trusting that God is indeed on our side? As the psalmist in Psalm 118 said, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If we are truly in Christ, if we are truly in God and in His Word and in His Spirit, can anything be done against us if God is on our side? And then he says, The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In who are we putting our confidence? Toward whom are we putting our confidence? Man? Or God. Because it is God eventually who will be on our side if we are in Him. If we are in Christ. If we are in His Word. If we are in His Spirit. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We've oftentimes sung a, a little chorus here called, The Strength of My Life. Every day I look to you to be the strength of my life. You're the hope I hold on to, to be the strength of my life. Be the strength of my life. That should be our prayer every day to the Lord. Be the strength of my life. The Lord instructed Jacob to go back to the place where he first had an encounter with God. Why? Why does the angel of God mention Bethel? Why does he say, come through here before you go home? In essence. Well, it's important, especially during difficult times, to remember the times when God spoke to us and brought us through those difficult times. And as we remember them. You've had difficult times. You all said that to me earlier, right? Did God deliver you from those difficult times? 
Was God not with you? Did not, did, did, didn't the Lord just encourage you and let you know, I'm with you? He provided the needs that you had? That's why He wants us to go back and remember that He is the same God still that He was then. If He delivered you then, He'll deliver you now. If He provided for you then, He's going to provide for you now. Because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's something we need to remember. That's why we have to go back to those times when God has met our needs. That same God is hearing your prayer now for today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Are you doing this? Are you casting your care upon Him? Because if you are, then you can be assured that He is going to care for you. Casting all your care upon Him. That's not just some care. That's all care. Casting all of your burdens upon the Lord. Well, then came the submission of Jacob's wives to his persuasion. They were persuaded. Because in verses 14 through 16, it says, Then Rachel and Leah answered Jacob and said to him, Is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Now, they're answering pretty strongly. They're, they're kind of a little bit upset of what's going on with their own father. And, they, and so they say, is there, is, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? In other words, does he, he just likes treat us, he treats us like foreigners? That we're not, we're not part of his family? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. In other words, well, what he did in giving us to you, in essence, he sold us to you. And he's kept our inheritance. He's kept our part of what really belonged to us, which would eventually belong to our children. That's what they say in verse 16. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Isn't that interesting what they said at the very end there? Because Rachel and Leah haven't agreed on much, have they? But here we see that they agree that their father, Laban, was not interested in them, only the dowry that he was to keep for them. And the only problem is that he spent it all on himself, not on them. In fact, they saw the wealth that Jacob now obtained as a retribution for what their father did to them. Laban had left them in poverty because they said he consumed our money and their wealth was now, their wealth was now with Jacob. And this wealth was their children's inheritance. That's what they were concerned about with their children's inheritance. So what is sad in all of this is that Laban did not love his daughters. He treated them shamefully and cruelly in marriage. The way that he manipulated that situation with Jacob and Leah and, and Rachel. All manipulation. He saw them only as a gain for himself. Can you imagine a father that would do that with his own children? Use them as gain for himself because he cared nothing for their well-being. But this brought them to speak encouragement to Jacob. Listen to what they said. Whatever God has said to you to do, or whatever God has said to do it, or whatever God has said to do, do it. That's what they said to Jacob. Whatever God has said to do, you do it. And Rachel and Leah actually have never spoken better 
they encouraged Jacob to obey God. Now, I know they could have been a little angry about it. But nonetheless, they said, do what God tells you. And you know, would that more wives encourage their husbands to obey God? Would that more wives would encourage their husbands to obey God? Would that more husbands would encourage their wives to obey God? And would that more parents would encourage their children to obey God? Is this not what we are called to do in our families and in our homes? To encourage each other to obey God? Well, there comes the parting now in separation. We see that in the last few verses of our text for today. We are going to come back to this portion because there's a lot here that we need to deal with and we can't do it in the time we have. But let's read it anyway. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Now, by the way, the mention of camels here is is an indication that Jacob had indeed become wealthy because in that culture and time, Camels were actually the, the luxury vehicle of the desert. <laughs> and and you, you had to really have some wealth to have camels. So this was an indication that Jacob was now wealthy. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. But now things get a little sticky here. Because it says, Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, And Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Now we're back to the soap opera here. All the drama that's got to kind of wake us up uh, to the fact that God is still in control, but he's still stirring some stuff up here for Jacob to have to trust him all the more. And, uh, And so then it says that Jacob stole away, which means he left quietly unknown to Laban the Syrian in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So, how are we going to look at Jacob in doing this? That's going to be the question we'll kind of keep for the next time. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and he crossed the river and he healed, I'm sorry, he headed toward the mountains of Gilead. Well, here's the questions that I want you to keep in in mind before we close today. Knowing that the Lord had promised safe passage for Jacob to return home, was his fleeing from Laban without letting him know, was it a sign that he lacked confidence in God's promises and relied more on his own wisdom and ability? Again, it's just a question for you to think about. While he had already been given a promise of safe passage, was he now acting on his own by leaving without telling Laban? Did he sneak away, in other words, into the will of God instead of departing in triumph? Again, something to think about because it is debatable. It is something that is arguable here. But the greater issue was Rachel pilfering her father's household idols, stealing them, stealing the teraphim that belonged to her father. Now, stealing her father's idols reveals some faulty character in Creed and Rachel. 
But it just brings to mind a couple of things before we close, and that is this. How stupid to steal those idols thinking that they could help her. If she was an idol worshiper like her father still, and she hadn't truly and fully accepted the, the truth of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then it would, would have been a stupid thing for her to steal idols that, uh, you know, couldn't help her at all. Now, you have to consider the other thought is that she stole them because she's really upset that her father left them without anything. So she was saying, I want to take some with me of value. And these particular idols may have been uh, with uh, some gold or silver or some other kind of precious metal that might have been incorporated in the making of these idols. Uh, so we, we think of that possibility as well. But it still comes down to this. How could anyone, or how could anything, I should say, help you that can be stolen by someone? How can anything help that can be stolen from the standpoint of an idol? Because when you think about it, all false creeds and philosophies are, are vain as the Bible teaches them. And really, they're stupid. Because it's putting trust in things made by man and not putting trust in the God who created us. So, so I want you to think about this as we close today. What good is a, is a God that can be stolen? If you can steal a God, what good is it? <laughs> right? What good is it? Because all in all, all it is really, then when you think about it, is something that's made out of stone or wood. And as we have been told very clearly in the book of Psalms, a couple of times as a matter of fact, that these idols made by the hands of man, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Oh, you could add all kinds of stuff to the, to the, the thinking here. They have hands, but they can't do anything. They have feet, but they can't go anywhere unless you're carrying them yourselves. They're nothing but wood or stone or precious metal. What good are they? Because they're not alive. They're dead. My encouragement to you today is we have a God that is alive. We have a God that is alive. And while the world is saying no, God is saying go. Well, that God that says go is alive. And He's powerful. And He's given us purpose. And He's given us meaning. And He gives us direction. And He gives us strength. And He gives us wisdom. He gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. It is Jesus Christ who is our security. What good is a God that can be sat on, as we'll see next time with Rachel, to hide it from her father Laban? She sits on it. What good is a God that you can sit on and it remains silent when you're looking for it? She's sitting on it and she tells you know, the father, well, you know, I'm going through my monthly thing, so, you know, I don't have what you have. So he wasn't going to... You know, if this God meant anything, he was like, I'm not here. I'm here. I couldn't, that, that little idol couldn't do that, you see. But our God speaks to us. 
Our God spoke to Jacob and said, return to the land. Let's go. Return. Our God is mighty. Our God is omniscient, which means He's all-knowing. Our God is omnipresent, which means He's always present. Our God is omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. Our God is immutable, which means He is a God that never changes. Our God is holy, holy, holy. Our God is love. Our God is full of grace. Our God is full of mercy. Our God speaks. Our God has given us His Word. Our God has given us His presence. Our God has given us His plan. Our God has given us His purpose. For our lives, where we are, where we live, where we work, what we do, what we say. And I close with these words of Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 18 when he said, I am he who lives. He's alive, you see. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Tells us twice, I'm alive. And not only am I alive, but I'm alive forevermore. And I have died on your behalf so that you can live forever. And I have the keys of Hades and death, which says I'm in control of all things. You can trust me. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Because he's alive. And the gods and the false gods and the false idols and the false thoughts and the false religions and the false philosophies and all of the false things that are all around us today cannot stand up to the truth of Jesus Christ. Never have and never will. So, you need to know Jesus. And he said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You came in here restless today, you can leave here in the peace of Jesus Christ. The peace that passes understanding. Don't leave without him. Leave with him. And he'll go with you. And he'll strengthen you. And he'll love you. And He'll provide for you everything you need for life and godliness. Let's pray.